an interesting sounding beast. So, okay, I'm trying to guess the frog call. It sounds like it's very rapid fire, so mm-hmm. like a subdued machine gun effect frog. Yes. I think it's definitely a frog. It sounds small. Yep. Chirpy. I think it's found in the forest. This is good. Yes, this is good. Yep. I think it's calling, uh, screaming that this is its area. I'm going for something that lives in the trees. Yeah, this is good. Let's go. What are we doing this episode on? Because maybe there's some clues. Maybe there's some clues. Oh, oh, okay. So we've actually got an episode about poison frogs here. So Mm -hmm. could it be something in the family of poison frogs, which in my notes is Dendrobatidae? Mm-hmm. He's onto something. Is it the strawberry poison frog? It's a damn good guess. It's a damn good guess, but it's not the strawberry poison frog. Uh, that was one of my options, but I couldn't find a nice recording that was of sufficient quality for the strawberry uh, poison frog. No, this is the yellow-banded poison dart frog, which is Dendrobates leucomelis. leucomelis? Ah, very beautiful, good. Beautiful, beautiful little, little frog, uh, sort of three to five centimetres, dark sort of black coloration mostly with several bands of yellow down it with sort of blotches of black in amongst those bands. So it's a sort of spotty and stripy all together, found in sort of Venezuela, Brazil, northern uh, Colombia, those sorts of places. I actually took care of one of these for a little bit while my friend Alexia was on holiday. I think it was called, I can't remember what its name was. I think it might have been Daffodil. But um, <laughs> That's quite a good name. I like that. I had, yeah, it, it ate all these tiny little um, fruit flies, flightless ones, which that is quite the uh, adaptation if you want to keep fruit flies because it's a hell of an advantage when they can't take flight. But <laughs> yeah, I used to just dump in like, I don't know, a lot of these little fruit flies and it would just like machine gun them like blip, 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 blip. <laughs> little tongue comes out imperceptibly fast. It was so awesome. So yeah, really cool. And I see why you pick this species, Ben, because they do resemble the frogs, which we're going to be talking about in the study. Right. Which weren't real frogs. They and real also frogs. most likely share a particular behavioral adaptation to do with their wee little tadpoles and parental care. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, that's just a little bit perfect, isn't it? Uh, I tried. I tried. I think you did exceptionally well. So um, let's talk about this paper. So it's by Toro Gomez, Carvajal Castro, Casas Cardona and Vargas Salinas, published in 2022, experimental evidence in a poison frog model suggests that tadpole transport on the dorsum may affect warning signal effectiveness in poison frogs, published in Evolutionary Ecology. Yeah, so the the title's sort of given a lot of the game away, but I think it's exceptionally neat. So we have these beautiful little poison dart frogs that, guess what, quite poisonous, and therefore, things don't want to eat them. We've got the classic... I mean, they are probably the classic example of aposomatic signals, right? Don't eat me. I'm going to cause you great discomfort and possibly death. Or at least, the very least, a bad taste. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Unpalatable frogs. Bright colours. Warning sign. Simple. Yeah. Same reason... Well, actually, I'm actually quite attracted to things. Aposomatism doesn't really work on me, I think, because of um, like things like 
Fruit pastels. Fruit pastels and things that are blue. Hmm. Like you yep. shouldn't drink windscreen wiper fluid. It's bright blue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then also you can find numerous energy drinks of similar sort of coloration. But We've I- kind of broken... <laughs> Humanity's yeah. hubris has like, broken oh the use of apo-Semitism for it. <laughs> oh my god, my baby drank this cleaning fluid. It's like, have you looked at the packaging? It looks delicious. Like, your baby didn't. It's blueberry, right? Shot. It's blueberry flavor. Yeah. It's lovely. I actually saw a video of an example of apo-Semitism, which sort of delighted me actually the yeah. other day. So one of my favorite fish is the scorpion fish. You know those like little benthic predators. They sit on the bottom. They look like. They're covered in this sort of like mossy. They've got that like stuff. upward jaw and they grab things from below. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. They yeah, suck them fun. in. And um, I think they've got spines on them as well. So mm-hmm. if you muck about them, they'll, they'll jab you. So, you know, they've got it all really. And anyway, you know, those little box fish. I don't know if you've ever seen one of them. They're literally box shaped. They're like a yeah. cube. They're like a cube with little eyes and a tiny pointy nose. Yeah. Well, one of them is just sort of milling about on the bottom of the sea and the diver's following it and it swims over the top of a scorpion fish and the scorpion fish sucks it in. And within about two seconds, it just spits it out. And um, obviously the box fish must have had a bad taste and it's also bright yellow. So hopefully that scorpion fish next time will see the bright yellow box. And that think, was a failure yeah. of aposemitism though, wasn't it? it? It didn't heed the warning. Well, no, I think it's more like the early stages of something learning the point of aposematism, right? Yeah. It's possible that some animals have to be martyrs for the others to benefit. That's true. There has to be a learning process. Yes. But having said that, and we'll talk about learning processes in just a second. Exactly. But the other thing is, yeah, like the boxfish was seemingly unharmed. Like it just went away. It just swam off. So it wasn't damaged in the encounter. If anything, it got stronger. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what doesn't kill you? Yeah. Makes you more confident. But yeah, we're talking about, in this case, we're talking about the frogs in the family Dendrobatidae, poison frogs, 200 species in the Neotropics, brightly coloured, foul-tasting and poisonous. And importantly in this, they were only using models. No frogs were harmed. No frogs were pecked. And they wanted to test to see, as the paper's title suggests, so the title, as you said, is a bit of a spoiler, but what can you do? They wanted to test to see if an avian predator, and for this they used chicks, the chicks of chickens, which are readily available. Gallus gallus domesticus. Gallus gallus domesticus, yes. And they wanted to basically find out whether or not frogs with this aposematic warning coloration were less likely to be eaten by chicks, but also mm-hmm. they were interested in the dynamic which having tadpoles on their back would um, introduce. And a lot of these poison frogs, they carry tadpoles on their backs. What they'll do, they usually nest in sort of like leaf litter and stuff. I don't know, I imagine they're doing like foam nests sometimes, but they lay their eggs in these little nests in the leaves. And then once the tadpoles have developed enough, they pick them up. They put them on their backs and they truck down to the nearest water source, which looks good. And they drop them off for the tadpoles to complete their development. And um, it's a nice little example of parental care. You know, frogs yeah. demonstrating a little bit of a plan of action, you know. Plus it's adorable them having them all on their little, on their back, like it's a sort of papoosed I know, tadpole yeah, transportation good. system. It's, yeah. It's very it cute. <laughs> it's super cute. But obviously, if your warning coloration is on your back, there's a chance that once you put tadpoles on your back, predators, which as we've been talking about, have kind of become adapted to not biting and eating things, which yeah. are poisonous looking. My brain, when it was thinking about this and how to describe it nicely, is like if you've got a nice high-vis jacket and you ride in a bike at night, yep, easily seen. 
not going to run into problems. You put a big backpack or rucksack over that, well, the effectiveness of your high-vis jacket is going to be diminished significantly, isn't it? And that's essentially what's occurring with these frogs, potentially, is they're covering up their wonderfully useful markings, their brightly seed markings, with quite dark, splotchy tadpoles. And they tested this in quite a clever way, because obviously, Mm -hmm. as you've just described, we might have the tadpoles blocking the coloration, but they wanted to compare. So they had two different kinds of frogs with warning coloration, ones with uh, warning yellowy backs, which is sort of like patterned backs, but another one with the yellowy warning of backs and also a red head, which is commonly associated with the warning coloration. And then they had just brown ones and the brown ones, obviously no warning whatsoever. And first of all, they needed some trained killers, right? Because this experiment's not going to work unless you've got something to actually attack your model frogs. So they had to train some chicks and they got the baby chickens in a little arena. And they basically just put out all the different colors of frogs, model frogs that they were likely to encounter. And they put mealworms on their backs. But crucially, in order to train them that the colorful ones were poisonous, because they needed to understand that the colorful ones were poisonous for this experiment to work. And you need to know that they've learned this. So then when you change it up and start hiding the aposomatic coloration under fake tadpoles, you know that that's leading to the change and the chicks actually know what's going on in terms of what ones they should be eating. Yes. Yeah. So they started off with these chicks and, you know, no disrespect to the chicks. They were ignorant chicks. They didn't know about aposomatic warning coloration in the first instance. So they had to eat a bunch of foul-tasting mealworms off the backs of the poison-looking frogs before they learned. Ah, that tastes horrible. Yes, what did they... They put a very specific chemical on it, which is super distasteful for birds, but completely harmless, right? I forget what it was. It was some weird thing. Because, of course, like, capsaicins wouldn't work in this case. Like, making something chilly hot wouldn't work because birds don't have... I don't think are susceptible to capsaicins at all. Ah, I thought you were going to say because birds like spicy food. Uh, well, they might. I don't know. I can't speak to bird experience. This is like that thing where the penguins can't taste fishiness, right? They can only taste salt. <laughs> That's <laughs> so tragic. Lives, they, ne- they never taste anything. <laughs> yeah, some sort of uh, alkaloid with an unpleasant taste yeah. was what they used. So first of all, they taught the chicks, listen, if you eat these mealworms off the backs of these poisonous looking frogs, they taste bad. And after a short time, the chicks were only really eating or like much more likely to eat worm, mealworms off the frogs, which were not poisonous. So, yes, or at least. And the ones that failed to learn were removed from the experiment. Yes. The ones that they could no longer compete. <laughs> That's devastating, isn't it? Imagine that, you know. Well, maybe they were glad. I don't know. But I yeah, think they were probably just, glad. It seems like a lot of effort. Yeah, they just got the dum-dums out of there and they kept the ones that had learned. And yeah, then they just put them in arenas with all the different colours and they had a mixture of frogs with tadpoles on the back and non-tadpoles in the back. And they just wanted to see amongst the sort of types of colour, so you've got the plain ones, the ones with the yellow bodies and the ones with the yellow bodies and the red heads. Is there a difference in when you put the tadpoles on the backs? Are they more likely to be eaten by chicks? Mm -hmm. And the results were... I mean, to be honest, astoundingly in keeping with their predictions, right? Yes. Yes, I think it worked almost perfectly in the way that you would expect. Yeah, yeah. And the way that was, was that, yes, they are much less likely to eat frogs which appear poisonous looking. But if you put tadpoles on the backs, the ones without red heads that only have the yellow backs are much more likely to be eaten. And if you put tadpoles on the backs of the ones with the red heads, they're still more likely to be eaten, but less so. So basically, the more of the warning coloration you cover up, 
the more likely they are to get eaten by chicks. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it, essentially, that's the broad overview. And then you've got the ones without any sort of coloration, sort of not doing brilliantly. And there's not really too much of a difference between, like, one with warning coloration entirely covered up by tadpoles, as in warning coloration on the back entirely covered up by tadpoles, and the ones that are just not got any warning coloration. So it does have that. It diminishes to such a point that it's basically the same as not having warning coloration, yeah. which... Yeah, like you say, it's pretty much a slam dunk in in terms of what you would expect. It's sort of demonstrating that here we have some chicks that have proven that they can learn to discriminate between foul tasting and tasty based on the uh, coloration. And then that has sort of led to this difference in likelihood to attack later on. And it seems to tally up perfectly with the visibility of conspicuous coloration on uh, the different parts of the frog. Which is great. Yeah, I mean, it just goes to show, doesn't it, that just like any other offspring of any sort of animal, the tadpoles are freeloaders and they incur a cost, not only in terms of having to actually physically lug them around on your back, right. but also you're more likely to get eaten by a predator. You know, it might realise subsequently that you don't taste very nice, but it's a bit too late by then. Yes, exactly. So, so it's this sort of double cost, like you're saying. I think there is a bit of a caveat to that, though which they bring up in the discussion, where you've got these black splotches on conspicuous coloration. And this entire experiment is done in a simple background, right? There's not foliage and and trees, branches, different lights and darks of shadow and, and illumination and things that might help with camouflage. So there is this possibility where the frogs are sort of switching what they're using. So... With no tadpoles, you're relying on aposematism. With tadpoles, you're more relying on crypsis. You're using the large dark spots of the tadpole to break up the shape of the frog. And therefore, this sort of difference between without tadpoles being very unlikely to be attacked and with tadpoles being more likely to be attacked, that difference might not be as significant in a complex background. Mm. And we know, I mean, I think we did a paper, oh, goodness knows when, where the sort of visibility and the sort of ability of predators to discern, oh, look, there's a frog, changes depending on how close and far you are from said frog. Like there was a weird Uh, synergy between certain patterns, certain backgrounds, and a certain distance from predator and prey. It was some kind of poison frog, wasn't it? And at a distance... I think so. Yeah, at a distance they look camouflaged, but then right. close they're warning It's aposematic. It was this genius-like yeah. combination of two things, and I don't think that you can discount that the tadpoles aren't playing into a similar sort of thing here, where they may be switching modes from like aposematism to something that's more crypsis-based. I don't know. Wow, cool. That's really cool. Did they mention that in the paper? They do. They've got a bit about sort of the complex backgrounds playing into it and how large dark splots can factor into disruptive coloration and the whole uh, sort of crypsis aspect. Yeah, and the effect of distance to prey on it. So it's intriguing. It's intriguing that there might be a switch. It's not all cut and dry that's like, oh my gosh, these frogs are definitely more vulnerable when they have tadpoles. It's the point sort of being made is it might not be as dramatic as this uh, laboratory setting here. Plus the frogs aren't moving. 
Yes, they're not, are they? No, they're just completely still. Yeah. But I didn't realise actually how long some of the time these tadpoles, they can stay on the backs for like multiple days and some of them actually finish growing on the backs. So it could be quite a long time. So it wouldn't be surprising right. if they'd adapted to have some kind of camouflage in this period. And it's so connected to like reproduction and survival of your young. It feels quite primed for quite an aggressive selective pressure to get that right. Yeah. So, yeah. It's really, really cool to see this all very nicely and tidily spelled out in this paper. It's a very nicely organised set-up paper with very sort of clear objectives to it. Mm. And it paints a very, you know, it shows the results are very compelling. I'm really looking forward to sort of the next step of doing this again, but with some level of background interference to see if that sort of mitigates what, from this paper, looks like quite a serious cost of having tadpoles on your back. Hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, it's not not entirely surprising, but yeah, it's a fun little adaptation, um, any little videos. I was a bit disappointed the videos for this paper didn't work for me. I couldn't actually... Um, you couldn't see actually, chicks going after chicks little, pecking. little modelled frogs. To, That's a shame. Did you manage to watch them? No, I, I didn't have time to No, I just I had a little click and they weren't working, which was a little bit disappointing. I couldn't download them because I wanted to see these deadly little predators going at it. But yeah, really nice example. And um, I think it's sort of... Um, the setup where you train chicks to attack the poison frogs, I'm sure we'll see a lot more of this because it seems like it works very, very well in answering these kinds of questions. And yeah, chicks are easy to get and easy to train. So why not yeah. keep using them? You know, they're getting some mealworms out of it. It's not they're not getting paid. There was a lovely aspect to reduce the sort of stress and like novel environment impact on the chicks that they had a little companion zone that was also occupied by chicks so they wouldn't feel too alone when undergoing the experiments, which is just adorable. <laughs> where you had that the, is. That's probably where they kept the chicks that sort of failed, right? If you're not learning, yeah, then they, you get yeah. demoted to yeah, companion no, they, chick. They probably kept them, Ben. Yeah, they're probably still alive. Well, no, they definitely are. They, <laughs> Yeah. No, they are. <laughs> I'm joking. In I'm the joking. ethics, I'm it says thinking. they're fine. Yeah, it's not like these other things where everything was euthanized at the end of the experiment. No, they were. Oh, that's good. No, I'm just thinking of like I've seen that episode of Dirty Jobs where he sexes the chicks and all the male ones just go into the oh, giant blender. It's, it's horrendous. Don't it's even horrendous. don't even go there. Yeah. But um, yeah, these so, ones were uh, fine. These ones were fine. These ones were fine. So listen, they um, did a good job. <laughs> I think that's about it for the old uh, poison frogs and their. Yes. Carrying their tadpoles around yes. on their backs. Have you got any other business? I don't. Nope. That's everything for me. Yeah. I just had one thing I wanted to mention. There was this study investigating bee chytrid fungus. Yes. Chytrid fungus. Although you got BD and B sal. Yeah. Chytrid fungus. And um, they're trying to develop a vaccine for chytrid, this fungus, which is killing all the frogs. And they did an experiment on hellbenders, the massive salamanders. In... Okay. It's a place to yeah. start. They were held bound as the giant salamanders. They had, they had BD. They had the skin fungus, and they vaccinated them either by giving them an oral vaccination, um, which was like dead chytrid inside their mouths, or they put the vaccine topically on their bodies, and. The hellbenders survived the infection regardless because I think they're just pretty hardcore and they can survive it. But okay. What was interesting was that if they were 
ectopically vaccinated. So if they had this like mixture of dead cells of the fungus rubbed on their skins in the early portion of the infection, then it actually upregulated some of their immune genes. And so it kind of fired off their immune system to sort of okay. start going a bit more strongly. And obviously it didn't really matter because all the hellbenders got better anyway, but it's kind of a good first sign that actually then it might be possible to sort of go around a recently infected frog area, square a little bit of dead BD on the frogs yep. that could help them in fighting Prompt the infection. It. It's just yeah, yeah it's just or kind even of a first step. in places where it hasn't appeared yet, potentially, just to sort of prompt the immune system to be aware of it, maybe if if you're not accidentally increasing the chances of, of an infection in that case. That would be probably be the much more effective way and normal way of using a vaccine. Right. Wouldn't it just go around first? But yeah, I mean it's quite a promising sign. The it paper's is quite hard logistically work. I didn't really understand a lot of it. Nightmarish. Yeah. But um, still, very cool. I mean, I guess you could just fill up a super soaker with the vaccine, pump it up to max, go out. When you know there's frogs, just blast them, blow them away. Yeah, one of those high pressure washers. Yeah. Make sure it really gets in there. (laughs) (laughs) Nicks and crannies. Yeah. Um, But yeah, no, I mean, it's still, it's a positive sign. I just love the idea that stuff like this is being attempted, really, because there are probably still lots of fragile areas, which... Oh, 100%. ...be... Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, if you learn a lot from, you know, <laughs> as depressing it is as it is, this won't be the last frog disease that people have to deal with. So, it's good to be have a better understanding of of how this one operates and how it could be combated, because next time you'll be better prepared. Yep. Let's always look forward to the next pandemic. Hey, man. I'm just you know, being prepared pays off, doesn't it? Yeah, it's best to have a plan right. than to just wallow around in ignorance and uh, then be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there have been other attempts to produce vaccines, but they haven't they haven't been sort of massively successful. It's all been a bit inconsistent. So yeah, yeah it's a complex kind of problem. Space, I guess. Yeah. You said you got no any other. No, business? I don't have anything. No, I'm good. Cool, cool, cool. Well, I think in that case, we're pretty much there for this episode. Excellent. And as ever. If anyone wants to get in touch with us, they can. We're herphighlights at gmail.com. You can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And if you want to support the podcast, we're extremely grateful to all our patrons. So you can do that at patreon.com slash herphighlights. Uh, we also sell t-shirts at redbubble.com slash herphighlights and mugs and the way of the goodness. But yeah, I think all that remains to be said is thank you for listening. Excellent. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.